It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring My Trustmark online and mobile banking. Monitor accounts and information, transfer funds, create special alerts and reminders. Details at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, June 12th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, what happens to children who depend on school lunch for healthy meals when school is dismissed for summer break? Hear from a food service program that's meeting the need. In Mississippi, one in four kids struggle with hunger, and that number is higher than the national average of one in five children. On Everyday Tech, pack up a few tech tips for traveling ahead of your summer vacation. And the cost of renting is becoming more expensive in the Magnolia State. Find out possible reasons why and who's most affected. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The school year may be over, but some children across the state can still access daily meals through summer feeding programs. The summer food service program called SFSP is a U.S. Department of Agricultural initiative to reduce food scarcity for children living in districts where 50 percent or more of the child population qualifies for free or reduced lunch. According to the Mississippi Department of Education, more than 800 locations will provide an estimated 2.5 million meals to children who otherwise might not have access to nutritious food this summer. Scott Clement is the director of child nutrition at MDE. He says some students depend on school meals as their only nutritious meal of the day. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware the need for the program is dire. The school meals are just terribly important for many of our children. We have so many children in Mississippi who live in poverty. They rely on those meals. And the summer food service program fills that need during the summer. We offer meals. And when I say we, sponsors do and sites do across the state. We administer the program. But there are areas that are greater than 50% free and reduced are eligible for the summer food service program, which in Mississippi is most of the state. Those sponsors, sometimes they will provide educational programs. That's fantastic. It draws the children in. But more importantly, they provide nutrition for the children who they don't have that uh, that safety net during the course of the summer that they have when there's a school breakfast and a school lunch every day. How many children aren't receiving adequate food outside of school? Now, that number I can't give you a hard number on, but what I can give you is, uh, and these numbers may help, we... Uh, 
we will have around 870 uh, sites this year that participate in the program. And through those sites, you would expect about a million and a half lunches to be served and about 900,000 breakfasts and maybe 150,000 or so snacks. So there's obviously a large need for it. Um, and that will vary from, you know, from location to location. It's hard for the rural sites sometimes because of the transportation, but uh, we have a variety of sponsors. It's not just the schools that actually participate in the program, but we'll have uh, governmental agencies. We'll have nonprofits who participate also. And really their goal is to reach as many children as they can who need the services. And I think those numbers, uh, about 2.5 million meals all told, uh, give you an idea of the scope of the need. So you mentioned the access for rural areas. Uh, What can they do to receive the access if they don't have that transportation? In those areas, we really rely on nonprofits in a lot of cases where the school may be centralized, but it's a rural area, and that's a time when, uh, you know, a local nonprofit can step up. And a lot of times they have volunteers who will come in and help and offset some of the costs also. But, you know, really that's our outreach is to, is to find those folks who are in those areas. And we make the Delta, uh, in particular, a point of, uh, of recruitment for us because we know there's so many places in the Delta where you don't have those population centers like you might in the Jackson or even on the coast or Meridian. So where are the different sites located? Well, there's something over 800, and they're all, all across the state. We have a summer map that is on our website, a link to USDA. And I've got a couple of things that will help people find sites. They can text FOOD, F-O-O-D, to 877-877. That will help them find a local site. There is an 800 number or 866 number, 1-866-3-HUNGRY. That's another way to find local feeding site. And then fns.usda.gov, Summer Food Rocks is actually an interactive map where people can find a local site. But really, they are all across the state. Does a program like this kind of help maybe areas that are considered food deserts? The Summer Food Service Program can definitely help children who are in food deserts in the sense that, one, we know there's already a lack of access to healthy foods. Uh, And, you know, the distance the parents do have to travel to buy food in general. And then when you couple that with these are typically families that are in need, and those parents a lot of time are working, is there food in the house? And I think this really does fill that need. Really the key to the summer program is it helps those students when they don't have another place to go. The parents may be at work, school's out. It gives them good, nutritious meals. And the meals are very similar to what they see during the school year. So we know that they're getting, uh, you know, a lot of people would say a square meal. They're getting a good, nutritious and balanced meal that they might not get if they're, you know, left at home by themselves. Scott Clemens is the Director of Child Nutrition with the Mississippi Department of Education. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Officials from the USDA Department of Housing and Urban Development, Magnolia Health, and MDA, MDE launched their 2017 efforts to promote child nutrition with a kickoff in Biloxi on Friday. Cindy Bloom is the Media and Events Director at Feeding the Gulf Coast, a member program covering the southern eight counties in the state. She tells MPB's Alexis Ware about their work. During the summer months, we partner with the USDA, and they have a summer food service program. So what we are able to do is create relationships with like summer camps or um, vacation Bible schools, any or boys and girls clubs, YMCAs, anywhere where children are naturally congregating for enrichment summer camps. 
we can partner with those 501c3s and nonprofits and provide a healthy, nutritious lunch for the youth that attend those programs. So anyone 18 and, and younger is eligible for a free lunch or breakfast and snack. So are these also students who may attend the public school and may qualify for a free or reduced lunch? Correct. So our program is actually open to any student as long as the area where they live, at least 50% of students are eligible for free and reduced lunch, which is pretty much every county in southern Mississippi, all the counties that we cover. So any person 18 and younger is eligible for this. There's no income verification um, at the time of receiving a meal. So all you have to do is be 18 and younger and you can get a free meal at one of our summer feeding sites. Why does an area like the Gulf Coast here in Mississippi need a program like this? In Mississippi, one in four kids struggle with hunger. And that number is higher than the national average of one in five children. So the Mississippi Gulf Coast has a higher percentage of children that struggle with hunger than the national average. How many children typically receive help from this? Yes, so last year we served about 2,500 kids just in Mississippi. And we cover a tri-state area. We cover southern Mississippi, southern Alabama, and Florida Panhandle. And over all three states, we served about 14,000 children. Tell me a little bit about what a meal might look like that these children are receiving. It's based on the USDA's MyPlate recommendations. So we make sure that we are in compliance with those recommendations and have the proper ratio of protein and grains and fruits and vegetables and calcium. So overall, what is the hope and the goal of this program for Mississippi's children? We're just concerned with getting nutritious food to children who are used to eating nutritious meals at school. Just like teachers are concerned with learning loss, we're concerned with nutrition loss over the summer. And you just can't function optimally if you're hungry. Cindy Bloom is with Feeding the Gulf Coast. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Feeding the Gulf Coast provides meals for children 18 and under in Perry, Green, Jackson, Pearl River, Stone, George, Harrison, and Hancock counties. Coming up, the cost of housing keeps growing further out of reach for some Mississippi residents. Find out more after our Everyday Tech segment. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, the host of Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Each week, Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, Associate Professor of Finance at Mississippi College, joins me and answers questions about credit, investing, saving for retirement, and all things finance. Also, we invite you to call in and share your successes in navigating the personal finance challenges that we all face. Money Talks, Tuesday mornings at 9 on MPB Think Radio. You count on MPB News for in-depth coverage of issues that matter to you. The state's ongoing opioid epidemic. A bill to allow guns in churches. The child welfare crisis. And the best radio newscast in the state. Those are just a few of the stories behind 10 new Associated Press Awards and another Edward R. Murrow Award. For the award-winning coverage you've come to expect, count on us. We are MPB News. We are MPB News. We are MPB News. We are MPB News. 
This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. I'm Sheree the Brit here with Wilts Couture. And this morning we're going to be talking traveling tech tips. For those of you who may soon be going on road trips, we'll talk about some things for you to consider on the tech side of things. Good morning to you, Wilts. How are you today? Hey, doing wonderful, Sharita. Have you done any traveling so far? Oh, yeah. Just recently got back from a uh, week long down at Walt Disney World. Dealing with tech on the road has definitely appeared in my recent memory. So one thing that always happens to me when I go on trips is my battery gets low because I'm using the phone as a GPS. In some instances, I'm using it as an iPod. What are your thoughts for having extra battery life to save your devices when you're traveling? Well, that's one of those things we really made sure to tackle on our recent trip. I actually carried one of those little small external batteries because not only are we using it for things like GPS, the smartphone has become our camera, our video camera, and we were snapping hundreds of pictures there. And that that will really just start to run your battery down over time. So having the extra battery in my pocket really made a big difference. Another really cool thing I noticed when I was there, and I don't know if this is a, a trend we'll see continue with some other places, but they actually had spare battery vending machines at the park. What? Yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was like 30 bucks, but you would get one of those little spare batteries. And once you had it for the duration of your trip, you'd get a little ticket. And whenever it ran out of battery charge, you'd go up to a machine, put that one back in. It would give you another one back. So the whole time you were there, you can keep an extra battery with you. Coolest thing, I'm really mad I didn't come up with that idea myself. Wow, and that just lets you know how dependent we are on these phones that we need a machine to dispense an extra battery. That is really interesting. What about the idea of dimming your screen? That's something I do. I don't know if it helps with saving battery life, but dimming the screen, turning off apps in the background, do those things help? Well, it really does. Your phone has a built-in feature to realize whenever it's really bright outside, it can automatically adjust itself. And that's what it's doing that for is to preserve some of that battery strength. So I would definitely promote dimming the screen down, especially on really bright areas as you need to. Again, one of the the hardest things your phone does is trying to produce that image because we all want high def. We all want those pretty pictures. So that dimming down will definitely help. Something else that really helps, turning off things like your Bluetooth and your Wi-Fi. For example, I wasn't worried about Bluetooth connections walking around in the parks there, so I turned that off. And it does help your battery some. Like you mentioned, closing down some of your apps and just not running everything wide open, especially if you're concerned about your battery power. One thing you did mention is that you and your family took hundreds of pictures while you were at Disney. What should you do? Because I know many people have this issue. Their phone, the memory gets full really quickly and they can't take pictures and can't receive pictures and things. So what is the cure to that memory getting full really quickly? What we did is usually I'm going to have a laptop with me of some sort. You know, there's always going to be a computer, it seems, tagging along. In the evenings when we would come on in, we would actually hook up the different phones. I hook up mine and the kids and my wives. Take those pictures and put them over onto our computer, get them off of our phones so they'd be all ready for the next day and ready to take even more pictures. That sounds good. And hopefully this doesn't happen to anybody, but it has happened to me. I've gone out of town and lost my phone and was not able to recover it. But now they have these things where if you have an iPhone, you can find your iPhone. What are some things you can do to protect your device in the event that it is stolen? I'm sure passwords will come in handy a lot in this situation. Passwords are definitely your first line of defense, keeping someone out, especially in this day and age. So many more people are putting more and more personal information in their phone. You may have be using like Apple Pay or Google Pay, for example. So definitely putting the passwords on there and realizing that if you do lose your phone, Apple as well as Android both have the Find My Phone feature. And whenever you log in to the website with these particular features, you can actually lock down your phone. So, for example, 
we have folks at work that have lost their phone. And one of the very first things we do is we go in, we go onto the website for for Apple, for example, you would go to the iCloud website, you log in using your Apple ID, and you can tell it you've lost your phone, and you can submit a whole new code to lock that thing down. You can even, in some instances, even wipe the phone so nobody can get to any information whatsoever. That's good to know. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about tech traveling tips on Everyday Tech, the show this coming Wednesday morning at 10 on MPB Think Radio. You can always send us an email to everydaytech at mpbonline.org. For Wills Couture, I'm Sharita Brent. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. Thanks for listening. You're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio. We appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. For the last month, volunteers in Orlando have been making rainbow ribbons to send all over the world. We're getting up to a million ribbons. What does that say to you? That on this June 12th, the world will turn rainbow once again. I'm Ari Shapiro. We return to Orlando to mark one year since the Pulse nightclub shootings. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In the Magnolia State, the cost of renting a home is on the rise, leaving some people with limited options. Out of reach, a new study by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition found Mississippians have to earn $15 an hour to afford a two-bedroom apartment that costs $772 per month. And if they earn minimum wage, they have to work as many as 82 hours a week to afford the going rate for a two-bedroom apartment. Experts recommend people spend no more than 30% of their income on housing. The report looks at rental rates for apartments and homes nationwide. The result? In Mississippi, low-income families are being priced out of the market. Tim Collins is executive director of the Mississippi Housing Partnership. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier he is not surprised by the report. I believe that the trends that you see depicted by this report I have probably been going that way for quite some time. Those of us who've been in affordable housing for a number of years, we know the challenges that the inavailability of resources presents. Most of the affordable housing that's been produced uh, from a national perspective, and certainly here in the state of Mississippi, uh, has been produced through uh, federal, state, uh, other local programs or incentives for affordable housing. So what we've seen uh, for a number of years, and this this is why I'm saying that it's been trending that way, what we've seen for a number of years, uh, and, and uh, God forbid if, if, if the political winds get current wishes, we've seen that the availability of those federal resources have dwindled. And so even in the new uh, uh, national budgetary report uh, by, by the White House, we'll see some programs that we've depended on go from so many millions of dollars to, to, to nothing, literally. And so these programs have helped to support affordable housing, low-income housing, uh, to at least make that housing available to some extent. The problem is the, the availability of those resources have not kept pace with, pace with the need for that housing. 
And so therein lies the problem. When you talk about affordable housing, does there have to be public assistance in order for people to get reasonable housing? Why are apartments going up in terms of the cost? I, I think it's a great, a great question. I, I, I don't think that there should be public assistance uh, for folks to get affordable housing. It's, it's unfortunate that that's what we're seeing. Uh, and if there's not public assistance built into some of the housing that's available, then it's out of reach, as this report suggests, for some people. I think what we're seeing is that uh, with the homeownership rate declining nationally and from, from a state perspective, uh, there are some people who are choosing to rent for whatever reason, and there are some people who are having to, to uh, forego homeownership because they can't afford it. And so since they're having to forego homeownership, that pushes them into a rental situation. And if people are choosing to rent, then you see demand for rental housing going up, but the supply for that housing is not matching it. And so with the demand being up in the, in the old economic um, way of life, uh, when demand is higher than supply, then prices automatically go up. And that's what we're seeing here in terms of this rental housing. There should be, should not have to be public assistance, but it's, it's the way that our market is set up, it's the way it's operating. And so there are not enough private persons or private companies who are committed to providing uh, low-cost, affordable housing for lower-income folk. Again, they're in the business of making a profit, and that's what they've stuck with. And so they've not uh, uh, used, utilized their time or invested their heart uh, into doing that. And that's, that's the state of the matter that we're seeing right now. What is the impact on families that uh, are in this situation who maybe can't afford a home but don't mind renting, know they need to rent, but they're almost priced out of the market? The impact on some which is what we're seeing, is that it leads to a higher degree of, of, of homelessness. Uh, I, I think um, nationally, locally, certainly here in the state and here in, here in Jackson, we've seen our housing numbers, uh, uh, our homeless numbers uh, increase because if people can't afford basic rents, uh, then they've got to have shelter. It's a basic need for all of us, food, clothing, shelter. Uh, but if they don't have that, then it drives them to another situation and so it places them... Uh, into homelessness. That's a sad state of affairs. And even if you have, for instance, a family that has to move in with another family of, of theirs for any period of time, a couple of months, uh, a couple of years, essentially says that that family is homeless. They don't have another place to stay. And so those numbers are not uh, normally counted, but they are homeless. They, they are in a, they're in a house, but it's not their house. And so it, it increases the, the state of, of homelessness. Uh, it increases the state of despair, in my opinion. And then it just uh, it, it further erodes our communities uh, because if we take Jackson, for instance, you can ride throughout this city. And Jackson, I always tell folks, Jackson is not unlike any urban area. You can ride throughout the city of Jackson, see a number of, of vacant properties, dilapidated properties that have declined over the years because some property owner has abandoned uh, that particular house and not reinvesting back into the urban community. Those are the kinds of houses that I, I feel like Desiree ought to be taken and put back onto the roads and, and, and put into a positive situation where people who don't have places to stay can live. But nobody wants to invest in those because they're in a certain area, because they're in a certain condition. But if we were to take those houses, invest in those properties, and make those available for people who can't afford this high rent, that would help to cure the problem. But we're not doing that. And so it's, you know, it's, 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 it's just a terrible problem for, for families to have to deal with. It sounds like there's a number of things kind of uh, converging here. Yes, uh, I, I think you're exactly right. A number of things uh, converging, why, why, which is why I think 
there has to be a holistic plan uh, when you're talking about addressing community problems uh, or revitalizing an, an entire community. You just can't do it with housing. You have to have an availability of jobs uh, for the community. You have to have sound infrastructure. People need to know that they're going to be safe. And I'm one who, who, uh, who's not always felt that there's been a holistic plan to address the problems, sometimes uh, in our urban areas. Uh, and so that's an issue. And unless we do that, we're going to see the kind of thing that we're talking about relative to, to this report continue uh, to get worse. Uh, no, there should not have to be public assistance for public housing. There should be people who have the goodwill, who have the good heart to invest. Uh, but what's the plan? You can do, I think, affordable housing in conjunction with market rate housing, in, in specific areas, but there has to be a plan to address it. Uh, and we're not seeing that uh, from a national perspective and certainly from a statewide perspective and, and perhaps not even locally. And so if we had that, I think we could say, okay, well, we've got a plan. We've got an action process for how we address uh, what our issues are. And so we're going to address this in the Delta this way. We're going to address this in East Mississippi this way. We're going to address this in Central Mississippi to this extent. But we don't have that. Uh, we have different groups who are doing different things, and I think they're doing some good things. But I think we need to, to look at this from a more holistic approach, and that's that's been part of our problem since, uh, since I've been doing this. Well, Mr. Collins, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Keep listening because coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10 o'clock, it's Now You're Talking. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. I'm Karen Brown. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition. Only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring Trustmark Deposit Express, ATMs for business and personal banking. No deposit slips, no envelopes, no waiting. Most deposits made by 9 p.m. weekdays are credited that day. Details at Trustmark.com.